Welcome to the Indian Silicon Valley podcast. I'm your host Jivraj and on this podcast I speak with founders, investors and domain experts from the Indian Valley trying to understand the art of building a legendary company. In this episode I speak with Beeru Chet, the co-founder and CEO of Gupshop. Gupshop is defining the way businesses leverage conversational messaging to interact with their consumers. It is by far the market leader in its category and it recently turned a profitable unicorn with back-to-back funding rounds. This is Beirut's second startup and he earlier co-founded Elance, now known as Upwork, which is the public company at the heart of the global gig economy. Beirut's depth of experiences as a founder, having built successful companies for more than 20 years, is very reflective through his words of wisdom. This conversation with him is absolutely stellar as we explore the intricate aspects of how he is building up shop, how he stays ahead of the curve, how he looks at the uncontrollable aspects of starting up, and most importantly, how he utilizes his experience as a virtue. Thus, without further ado, let's dive in to the 63rd episode of the Indian Silicon Valley podcast with Beirut Sheik. of Gupsha Thank you so much Beirut for joining me absolutely honored to have you today Hey Jibraj thanks for having me here Great to hear that Beirut and as we go ahead with the discussion I want to dive deeper into so many of the intricate aspects of your 20 plus years of being a founder before we dive deeper into rabbit holes I want to start with an abstract note which is staying ahead of the curve so one thing that was very fascinating to note through the research when I was going leading up to the episode was that every time with all of your ventures you've been ahead of the curve be it with Elance when you thought about a, a marketplace for the gig economy which was way ahead of its time or when you talk about gupshop and conversational messaging and when you talk about you know how messaging is going to change in the future so if you can talk us through a part of your journey and also how important this aspect has been and what you would recommend young founders to do in order to stay ahead of the curve i think that be a great start to this wonderful conversation sure actually you know in some ways look it's a lot easier than you think it is basically when something changes when there's a huge disruption or a paradigm shift okay something that is dramatic and significant it will have a lot of consequences right and if you just sort of stop to think about what will change as a consequence of this giant change i think that already gives you a peek into the future and then if you start working on it quickly i mean you know by definition you are ahead of the curve now it may still take some time for the market to be ready to adopt whatever it is you're building but almost always great silicon valley ideas or startup ideas you know tech startup ideas have been built on the backs of some sort of dramatic paradigm shift so for example when the when the internet happened i mean you needed a, a place that could organize all the websites so you can find what you're looking for and it was a portal called yahoo first and a search engine called google you needed a browser to go visit all those websites so netscape and then other things you know were were huge i think and people wanted to see video so at some point youtube kind of you know when the bad, bandwidth got high enough to be able to do streaming video i mean that was the t- tipping point for for youtube to take off right and then later on people want to keep in touch with each other so social media and so on i think in our case you know same thing i think in that early days of the internet connecting far flung people and you know being able to transact with each other 
Most of the people were focusing on transaction of goods. We said transaction of services would be possible. So that's how Elance came about. And then Gupshap sort of came about um, just by looking at the rise of, you know, mobile phones. You know, there was a point in, what was it, 2000, in the mid 2000s, roughly, where mobile phones started picking up globally. And initially it was feature phones, later it was smartphones. But suddenly, you know, when you have five, seven billion users for the first time now having a new device, well, that's a giant technological shift that you can take advantage of. And, and then on and on, right? I think the same thing, even in India, right? When, when like geo democratized, you know, access to band broadband, I mean, suddenly that opens up a lot of new possibilities that were not possible before and so on. So we can go into that. But I think the, the, the short idea is when there's some giant sort of shift, paradigm shift happens, it opens up a lot of new opportunities that if you jump onto it quickly enough, will help you be ahead of the curve. Fair enough. Riding on the wave uh, is the cue and being uh, cognizant of how it's going to play out and maybe predicting, if not predicting, at least trying to see where it goes and then riding it is is my cue from that. But, you know, as we talk about that, a good segue would be to understand more about market timing, right? Sometimes you can do things that may be ahead of its time, which might have been the case in terms of Elance, right? If you can call it that. And there must be multiple other cycles also that you've seen where things have come and gone and they've not essentially stake. And it's not always the first mover that might essentially win, right? So when we talk about market timing, especially given that it's an uncontrollable for a founder, how do you deal with external factors? And how do you go about that in any particular ecosystem? That'd be interesting to gauge. Yeah, I think uh, absolutely right, right? So you can, you know, you can spot a wave coming and try to ride it. But but sometimes, you know, the wave can take a lot longer than you anticipated, which means then you need runway, you need funding to survive that long. Or you thought that, you know, maybe the consumer side will jump to it, but the enterprise side moves faster or vice versa, right? So it's not enough to just sort of have a broad space. You Within that broad space, you still have to have a specific target audience, a specific product, a specific, you know, sort of business model and sort of the funding based on sort of those things. And you need to have a specific team that's optimized to all of these things, right? And what can happen is, you know, some of those things, some of your assumptions may not hold out exactly as you thought they would, right? And therefore, you might need to, you know, sort of refine the target audience, refine the product, you know, refine the team, uh, and and so on, right? So I think, uh, yeah, you need, I mean, you know, this really, I mean, ultimately, there's no, you know, nobody knows the exact future, right? Which is why entrepreneurs, I mean, some of it is, you know, you, know, you think through it, you develop your strategy based on certain assumptions, and you have to constantly keep validating if those assumptions still hold. And if you get feedback from the market that either the customer doesn't like it or, or, or they like it, but they're not willing to pay for it, you know, or they're willing to pay for it, but, um, you know, but, but your execution is not scaling, and so on. Those are the times where you sort of need to, you know, uh, really course correct. And uh, that's what we call a pivot. You need to change one or more of these things, you know, and certainly in my experience, we've had to, you know, I think uh, both at uh, Elance or Upwork now and now at Gupshop, uh, you know, we've had to execute these sort of pivots, you know, I think from, in both cases, actually from consumer to an enterprise business model, and also, uh, so the target audience changed, therefore the product changed and the business model also changed. And then the team also had to change over time. So 
each of these things, uh, I mean, yeah, you need to be constantly, I, I mean, so see the life of an entrepreneur is a bit of like paranoia, right? I mean, I'm, I'm always, uh, I mean, as Andy Grove famously wrote this book called Only the Paranoid Survive. I mean, you kind of have to be constantly thinking about, okay, you know, what am I, what am I missing? What am I not thinking about? What am I not aware about, right? What are the trends that are changing? And, you know, the tech industry is always so dynamic and you kind of have to be on top of things and be aware of it. And, and, you know, the moment you get arrogant or you think, you know, everything, I mean, that's when, you know, so you have to approach this whole exercise with a lot of intellectual humility saying, you know, your track record doesn't matter in the moment, right here, right now with this product, with this odd customer and with this uh, team, what can you, what can you really build? Uh, and if any of those assumptions change, then you have to say, okay, I was wrong. And it's not like success or failure. It just means that, you know, you had this assumption, this, uh, you know, and that didn't bear out and you need to change something. Uh, otherwise, you know, it's not going to work. So I think in that sense, good entrepreneurs are always very, very flexible, very nimble. You know, whatever's working, you double down on it, scale it up. If it's not working, you sort of adjust it, refine it and refocus it. Uh, and you, you know, and that's a constant exercise, right? Some pivots are very big pivots, but in some sense, there are mini or micro pivots you're, you know, fine tuning literally every day, right? You might say, okay, this customer, let's not focus on this customer. Let's focus on this one instead, or let's add this feature instead of, you know, feature A versus feature B, you know, or let's price it, you know, change the pricing model or things like that. So you're always, always tweaking, refining, adjusting so that you have the right right product for the right customer with the right business model and the right team to execute on it. Exactly. I think, you know, intellectual humility and flexibility, as you mentioned, but, uh, you know, Beirut, if we can just double click on the pivots once, because in hindsight, I'm sure, you know, it, it's easy to backward, calculate backwards. And as Steve Jobs has mentioned, you know, connect the dots. But in the moment when you're taking some of these difficult decisions, right, because again, how actionable it might be or how it's going to play out is only as questionable as the future. But when you were doing, let's say, the pivot for Gupshop, right, how was it and what did you think through and what would you suggest founders do like being married to the problem and you know thinking problem first all of these are solutions that have been out there in the open but from your personal experience what are things that played in your favor and how did you have the conviction to you know go ahead and pivot i think that would be really interesting to understand better yeah i think the maybe the hardest thing in the, this whole thing is just the founder psychology right just your personal self which is if you get married to an idea or if your ego gets attached to to that thing or you're worried about what will other people think where until yesterday you were telling them we're going to go right and now suddenly you're going to say we're going to go left um, uh, what will everybody think of you what will your investors think of you you know and so on and these are all uh, i think often you know rookie entrepreneurs or early stage entrepreneurs often sort of make these mistakes because all of these things they they kind of cloud decision making i think you know really like i said you know uh, there is you know an entrepreneurial journey has is going to have a lot of obstacles a lot of challenges and there's no there's no failure you really just have to approach with look nobody has done this i mean if if you know if there was a path to follow you know then many people would have executed it but by definition usually with innovative companies you're doing things that nobody has ever done before and if nobody's done before, there's no shame in saying, okay, I thought this would work. It didn't work. Okay, what am I going to do next? Right? So really, I think it just, uh, 
you kind of have to take a analytical problem solving mindset you know the growth mindset as they call it in an entrepreneurial approach okay if this didn't work could i try something else could i tweak it modify it and so on right uh, it, it's not like it's all or nothing success or failure what you're really trying to say is what worked what didn't work and that applies even on a day to day basis even to the product features you're building even to customers you're selling to just as it does to the overall company strategy so so i think it's uh, maybe the best analogy is look when you're driving a car it's uh, you can't say i'm going to put it in autopilot and it's going to go to the destination i mean you know we still don't have that software i mean you're the way we drive a car is you know sometimes you go a little to the right a little to the left you're course correcting every step of the way sometimes you speed up sometimes you're braking down you know you you're braking and slowing down i think and all of it is you know just exercising judgment and course correction and if your ego gets in the way saying no i just want to go right doesn't matter if the road is turning left i mean you know what will happen then right so i think it's the it's the same thing or if you don't slow down on a curve because you can't see far enough ahead uh again that can cause problems so it's really you know i think you 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 just have to you're in the driver's seat um you can't you just have to say okay how do i get to where i want to go and you know what's the what's the best and the easiest uh, and the lowest risk way of getting there absolutely that that's amazing to hear and love the car analogy i think the only difference there would be it's just driving a car on a mountain hill as opposed to the normal roads given the founder journey but um as we move on to i think i, I want to now focus a chunk of the conversation on how you are building upsha but before we go there it'll be very interesting to understand what your observations from building in the valley have been right because you've seen the valley shape up in the last two decades like no other there've been multiple multi generational companies born in this time period that you've seen established and also now conquer right so if you can just talk to us about what that ecosystem has meant for you how it's helped you become the entrepreneur that you are today and also maybe talk us through what you're seeing in india happening right now given that we are at an inflection point where we're seeing multiple companies really thrive out of india and amazing innovation coming through which is also the theme of the podcast where i'm calling it indian silicon valley so if you can give us that entire learning your set of learnings from the last decade or two uh, that be wonderful to hear yeah i guess uh, you know i think what's unique about the valley is is uh, just the it's sort of in the air right which is you have a lot of people with a lot of shared experience you know a lot, a lot of experiences from trying new things and through those battle scars uh, and the experiences that they, the learnings that they've acquired uh they're very willing to share and share each other and there's a very high density of people with a lot of insights right and that really matters right because again it's sort of in an innovative business it's nobody's done it everybody's trying to figure it out so it's not like you have a clear path to use another analogy you're trying to sort of climb a mountain uh, at night you know complete dark you can't see anything and all you can do is feel and you know so what you do is you maybe take a step in the right direction step the side another step the other way and whichever is sort of moving up you say okay this seems to be getting you know moving uphill and therefore i should kind of go that way and then to speed it up you get 10 of your friends and say okay every one of you try to take a step and then tell me which one is the right or the wrong one so in this sort of scenario i mean nobody has full visibility and the only thing you have are um just sort of rules of thumb and you know principles 
and writing instincts and, and so on, right? And that really uh, determines everything in terms of best practices and so on, right? And especially a lot of these insights are very counterintuitive, which is to say, give away your product for free. And then the real value is not in the product, but in the data you collect or, you know, which you can use for advertising, like social media companies do or search engine companies do, or um, even in enterprise software, people have done it, right? So, so sort of this sort of weird pricing or network effects or platform thinking or uh, lean methodology for figuring out what the right feature should be, right? And these, these things become, or, or blitz scaling. I mean, these are all sort of, you know, different approaches. These, this is sort of the entrepreneurial toolkit. And you have a lot of people here that have tried different tools and figured out, oh, this tool is right for this situation under that circumstance and this market. And, and for that, you need this kind of team. So all of these, you know, sort of combinatorial, you know, all these combinations and permutations have been tried and people have sort of developed these guiding principles that actually help companies grow faster and when it's working, how to scale up, when it's not working, how to turn around, how to fix it, how to modify it, you know, how to get a lot of capital, all the relationships, insights, and so on. So I think that's special about the Valley, right? And I think uh, India, I'm very optimistic. Uh, it still has some way to go there, right? The, the density of entrepreneurs, of experienced entrepreneurs, of second, third generation entrepreneurs, and so on is, is very, very low, right? I mean, we, we barely had you know, one generation of successful entrepreneurs, let alone, you know, second and third. And, and even that number is very, very small. So I think, uh, but I'm very optimistic. I mean, look at the number of unicorns that have been funded, look at the number of companies that are getting out there and, and you know, India has scale. So I'm, I'm, I'm confident it'll get there, but, you know, it takes, it. some of that just takes time and it takes maturity and sort of experience. Now, the fortunately, the good thing is, you know, India and Silicon Valley, have, I mean, are very tightly connected at the hip. I mean, you know, and then of course, you know, with these uh, tools, right, Zoom and so on, it makes it a lot easier uh, with blogs and podcasts and so on. So everybody can have access to the same data. And there's a lot of conversations, one-on-one -on -one conversations, customized conversations also happening at a very high scale. So I think it's, uh, all these gaps can be bridged, right? You don't need the entrepreneur physically in India if you can talk to somebody you know, in the valley and just tap into the same knowledge. So I think, uh, and, and that's happening, right? So that gives me sort of uh, cause for opportunity. Plus, of course, India has a huge, it's a growth market, right? I mean, there's, there's such a, the baseline of tech is so low compared to the US um, that in, in that sense, there's many, many more growth opportunities. So you combine this sort of, you know, valley know-how along with the Indian growth market, I think there's a ton of opportunities. And that's where, in a way, Gupshap sort of sits at that intersection, right? I mean, I'm here right now talking to you from Silicon Valley uh, while, you know, the bulk of our business is in India. But I do think that, you know, I think that allows us to do the best of both worlds, right? Which is really bring in uh, disruptive, innovative, unique sort of thinking and, uh, you know, apply it in the high growth Indian market. Absolutely. No, I love that. Uh, from what I can observe, it's more about, you know, the air of the ecosystem and the shared sort of experiences that exist, which India is catching up with. But it's great to see that, you know, if there is one advantage of what has been a terrible crisis, it's that the world has truly flattened. And so resource and, you know, people connecting with each other is not at all an issue. And this conversation in itself is a testament to it. Uh, as we move forward, right, uh, Gupshop is really driving the future of conversational messaging. I would love to 
to firstly understand how the product has evolved. So post the pivot into enterprise and, you know, driving conversational messaging for enterprises, how has the multiple versions of the product essentially evolved? Because there have been multiple things being done to date and innovation is at the core of what you're building. So if you can walk us through that journey of product building over the last decade, I think that'd be very interesting to gauge from a founder lens. Sure, I think uh, so. Over the last decade, I mean, look, when Gupshop got started, we sort of focused on, uh, like I said, you know, a mobile phone. The mobile revolution was just happening, mostly feature phones at that time in India. So we said, uh, now if you want to build a service that reaches hundreds of millions of people, the only way to do it was through SMS, right? Because SMS was the uh, lowest common denominator. And initially, we had a consumer-focused service, you know, which what was called at that time SMS Gupshop, and these were sort of networks of publishers and subscribers. Uh, but anyway, it grew very popular, but we couldn't afford to subsidize it or to monetize it. So then we pivoted, right? There was the first pivot, and we said, okay, SMS is great, engagement is great, but you know, we'll sell it to enterprises who can afford to pay for it. So so we took the best part of our platform, which was the scale and the engagement tools and sort of, you know, pivoted the business model to, to enterprise. Since then, we've sort of building out the platform, scaling out the platform. And then along the way, a lot of interesting things have happened, right? I mean, we are at Gupshop, we pride ourselves on pushing the limits of, of messaging technology, trying out different things, new things, and so on, right? So for example, with SMS, the basic sort of messaging is you get these notifications today on your device, right? Which is, uh, your order, your e-commerce company says your order is confirmed, your package is shipped, your food is arriving, or, your, or you used your credit card to spend 100 rupees at the cafe, and so on, right? These are the basic kind of messages. But since then, now you have other channels that are emerging, right? You can send a message on WhatsApp, you can send a message on Instagram, you can send, uh, and Gupshop has launched something called, called GIP. So you can send these messages through the messages through the other channels. And more importantly, the consumer can now reply which means now you can have a two-way conversation between a business and the consumer. So that's creating this whole new opportunity of conversational experiences. People are creating chatbots. I mean, enterprises are creating chatbots to automate this two-way conversation with customers. So the way Gupshire product has evolved is initially we were just providing SMS APIs, and then we added more channels. Uh, There's like 30 plus channels that we offer. And then as the channels grew and became richer, we now have conversational tools, which is the next layer of the stack, the additional tools to automate these things. And then even above that, you know, this conversational AI, which allow you to have unstructured natural language conversations, you know, imagine like Amazon Alexa or something. So you can have these sort of discussion with any brand or business. I think of late, uh, you know, we've seen an explosion of interest from enterprises we think virtually every business is going to have to build these uh, conversation experiences, right? So, so the market opportunity has just expanded dramatically and we're building out all these tools. Again, to use an analogy, it's a little bit like the web, right? In the mid nineties, when the web came about, every business had to build a website because that's the, that was the digital storefront. That's where people would come in from and look for businesses. Today, consumers use messaging apps, right? And that's where they want to interact with businesses. So now, these conversational experiences are the new digital storefront. That's where the customers are. That's where they're looking for businesses. And therefore, every business is going to have to build this. Every restaurant, every retailer, every you know, bank and airline and so on. So we think there's a huge opportunity. 
to, to really enable this vision. And once it's achieved, it's great for consumers too, because now they can get one click instant responses 24 by seven uh, from any business or brand, rather than calling to the call center during office hours and holding, staying on hold for a long time, or being able to transact quickly or to check balances and things like that. So I think it's a, it's a huge opportunity and our product is sort of constantly, you know, constantly evolving to get richer and offer more capabilities and sort of provide this whole infrastructure to businesses that want to build chatbots and conversation experiences and use messaging APIs. Phenomenal to hear that. And I was pleasantly surprised to know that uh, the OnePlus messaging experience, which is phenomenal, is powered by Gupshop. So uh, phenomenal work there. And evidently, it makes the life of consumers and enterprises, I'm guessing, much, much easier and much, much faster. I love the analogy of the Web 2.0 as well. But, but as we talk about that, right, for instance, a OnePlus partnership and the multiple wonderful enterprises that you have on board from across the world now, can you perhaps talk to us about how has enterprise sales evolved for Gupshop, right? And your interest in enterprise and experience has been far and long. So if you can talk to us about, and you know, perhaps gorge, because there are a bunch of founders who are building in the enterprise world. And we've always heard how important sales is as a factor, right? How important sales can be for a founder alone to find those clients early on and as you scale. So perhaps if you can tell us what the secret has been for Gupshop to power almost uh, last I saw 6 billion plus messages and those numbers, which are staggering it'll be great to hear that sure absolutely i mean first and foremost look the secret to great sales is to have a great product that's a prerequisite and then the secret to having a great product is to have sort of a great vision right of what is it, what is it that you want to build that customers will love so if you start with the the right thing like i described earlier our vision for conversational messaging which we've seen a lot of interest in and then we build out the product with all of these capabilities that customers need and also spend time on making it sort of automated, self-serve, easy to use, easy to try, easy to customize, easy to maintain, easy to support. If all of that thinking has gone into the product already, then that makes the sales process or the marketing and sales process a lot easier. Because then when, you, when the sales team is talking to the customer, firstly, you can bring new and innovative ideas, which now Gupshap has a reputation for being, you know, maybe the most innovative player in, in the space and bringing out these new ideas. And secondly, you know, the products that we sell, they are you know, good quality platform. The infrastructure is very stable and reliable. They are easy to try. You know, we, are, we also like to think Gupshap is a very, very easy to work with, which means, you know, our, our pricing is very transparent. Our pricing model is very straightforward. It's typically usually pay as you go. So, so you don't have to worry about making a huge commitment up front and then worrying about whether it'll be worth it or not. You just sort of get started, start using it. And we have good APIs with good documentation uh, with uh, a lot of you know uh, tutorials. And then we host a lot of webinars and we do a lot of evangelism. Uh, we provide good support, right? So, so every aspect of that thing is once that's taken care of, that makes really the salesperson's life a lot easier. And then of course, on the sales side, you know, you wanna bring in people who are experts in the domain or in the sales process, and they, they, understand, they understand how to evangelize new products because you know, selling commodity products is very different from selling sort of brand new products. You, you really have to explain, educate, evangelize, and then convert a customer. So, so hiring the right kind of people is critical. Having the, the right incentives 
in the system, right, to avoid any conflicts and to prioritize certain products over other products and so on. So yeah, I mean that's uh, that's been the you know the, the sales strategy, and now we are expanding to internationally. We are sort of in a dozen plus countries and and scaling very rapidly around the world. So all of that uh, comes into play uh, to drive uh, sort of market success. Yeah. It's been amazing to see the growth. And as you've, you know, mentioned in the past as well, you're looking at expanding in LATAM, in other geographies as well. And so that's great to see. And especially the evangelism perspective as well. But, you know, if we can double click on the global expansion, as consumers differ or there are diverse cultures that come into the picture, how do you transfer one playbook to the other? And is it as simple as, you know, ensuring that the top of the funnel is uh, simplified because eventually in the micro level, it'll be repeatable playbooks or are there more nuances that go into global footprint expansion that would be very very fascinating to just understand yeah i think it's a you know it's a combination right so like i like i mentioned earlier you want your product to be customizable and flexible you want it internationalization you know iit then has to be ready because you need to offer it in the local language you need to hire people locally both for evangelism and for customer support. So even if product and engineering could be in one place, um, but some factors have to be uh, local and so on. So I think we do, you know, we do that. We hire, you know, local teams, but relatively light or small teams because because the product is self-serve and automated and easy to use and and so on, right? So and we leverage marketing as well a lot, right? So so then that allows you to scale to more countries faster and easier. You know, and then, like I said, you make your product customizable enough so that when you get differing requirements, right, there are different currencies and different payment systems and, you know, different messaging requirements and different languages and and so on. So I think there are enough differences that you have to be able to customize to. Uh, But at the same time, right, you should select the spaces you're going after where there's enough commonality that you're not building the product 10 times over. I mean, so what I would say is, 80% 80% of it should be the same, and maybe as 20% uh, unique differences that you can localize. But if you don't have that, I think then, then you're literally trying to run 10 companies. So, so I think you want to be a, a little careful with that. But so long as that's not the case, if you can, there's enough commonality, uh, the, the other things you can very carefully and cleverly uh, sort of uh, customize for. Great, great. Wonderful to hear that. Further, you know, this is one question that I ask almost all founders that have been on the show. And this is regarding culture and hiring, right? And with your experience, Beirut, it would be very, very fascinating to know how you have probably looked at culture building, organizational building as you moved ahead. Because when it's all about the people building the phenomenal product and driving everything that happens on the forefront, how do you essentially build people is a mystery that lies ahead for every founder who's looking to start or is or is just starting out. So any pearls of wisdom there? would be very helpful sure i think uh, when you're building innovative companies perhaps the core aspect of it is you need an entrepreneurial culture and what i mean by that is an organization that is nimble and flexible in terms of uncovering opportunities doing trial and error being able to course correct and adjust as get new data and you discover new things and so on. But that's hard to do in a large organization. Uh, so, so therefore, the organization also has to be somewhat apolitical because you can't, it's not about personalities and egos. It's about what's the right thing for the company and what do we need to do? And if all decisions sort of flow from that, 
it leads to good outcomes and good decisions, right? So I think uh, being very, you know, entrepreneurial, also very open and transparent. I mean, especially in India, you have a lot of kids coming out of school, right? And they kind of, you, you tell them something and they go, yes, sir, yes, sir, yes, ma'am, and so on. And, you know, I like to say we have a no, sir culture, right? Because you don't want somebody, you know, I'll tell people, I'll get more mad at you if you do what I say than what you think you should have done because it was right. Because sometimes the person might know more about a particular customer or a particular situation. And just because someone else is senior doesn't automatically mean that everything they're saying is right. And when you're excessively deferential and excessively respectful, like you have to be in school with your professors, but that doesn't work in the workplace. If you do that to an extreme, then uh, basically you're not thinking, you're not you know, contributing, uh, you're, you're just sort of a foot soldier who's executing and, and so on. So I think you know, it's really important for people to think and think independently and do what's the right thing is and challenge other people irrespective of the seniority and because that's how our best ideas sort of uh, come up. And then, um, you know, I mean, just being, being collaborative, being very customer-centric. Ultimately, the customer reality is the only true reality. Even if, you know, the founder or the CEO says, okay, let's do this. But if the customer disagrees, I mean, you know, who's the real boss, right? Really, the customer is the real boss because they will, they decide who to pay and what products they like and so on. So you need that sort of culture as well. Now, of course, the customer will never be able to tell you what the version one of a product has to be. So you have to decide and say, okay, we'll build this and take it to them. But then they give you feedback. I like it. I don't like, can you, can you tweak this? Can you modify it? And so on, right? So I think... Uh, just, uh, I think these are uh, some of the cultural attributes that are that are essential in in an innovative organization, right? Now, this may change a little bit where uh, once you figured out what you want to do, and then you're just in a scale phase, you know, and a lot of other things like reliability and robustness, and uh, don't break things, and sort of attention to detail and things like that, also become parts of the culture, right? And that has to be like that. And sometimes companies are in different phases where, you know, some part of the business, like when we look at it, you know, there's the horizon one stuff, as we call it, uh, which has to be very rock solid and stable and reliable, and you don't mess with it. And you don't want to be very entrepreneurial. You can't keep tinkering with a, with a stable, reliable, high scale, high performance platform. Uh, but all your horizon two and three activities, right? The innovative stuff, the forward-looking stuff that you're betting on a three or five-year horizon, uh, you know, all that stuff, that team has to uh, sort of be very nimble and entrepreneurial. So sometimes you have to be careful. It's a combination of, you know, different things. Uh, different teams itself may have slightly different culture, but, but you know, the common theme is certainly, you know, being, being apolitical, collaborative, sort of doing the right thing, challenging each other, finding the best idea, being customer centric. I think that always works. Absolutely. Phenomenal pointers, all of them. And I think the common theme there is the entrepreneurial culture. If you can build a team full of entrepreneurs, I think most other things get taken care of. And Gupshop is a wonderful example of that. Great. I think uh, this has been wonderful. And as we wind down the conversation, I want to take a couple of last questions and maybe focus on your founder persona and especially understand more about the depth experiences you've had, right? So first up there is, Berud, given that you've seen so much in life, 
life, right? How do you now make decisions? And this means, you know, just uh, taking, taking this interview, for instance, to taking an important meeting, to taking out time for yourself and bracketing everything, uh, be it the small ones, the large ones, the personal ones, the professional ones. What is your decision-making framework and prioritization framework? I think that would be very, very fascinating to hear. Well, uh, I guess in general, you know, try to get as much data as you can, but beyond a beyond a certain point, I mean, really, you know, you have to go with your gut. Gut is really just a way of describing your collective sum of experiences and and sort of what works, what doesn't, and what might work, and so on. So it's really that because you, a lot of decision making happens with uncertainty, and you can't be paralyzed with that uncertainty, right? You're better off making a decision and having it be wrong and course correcting later rather than sort of being paralyzed or sometimes just being open saying, look, I'm going to try it. We're going to do an A-B test, right? Try this and try that. And once we get some data, then we pick one over the other and so on. So I think where you really don't know and you can afford to do a couple of experiments, you do it. When it's decision about people and recruiting and so on, you know, it's important to also look at, it's not just the resume, but also the attributes. Are they collaborative? Will they be able to fit into the culture that we've defined? You don't want jerks that are really smart. They could be smart, but they they might not be fit into the culture. So I think uh, maybe another thing is, you know, you leave aside a lot of think time, personal time, right? So I try not to literally get involved in every little thing that I can, because I think sometimes it requires you to reflect and and think about what are you missing out on? What are you not doing? Because usually it's the big things that, that you miss that kill you, not the lots of little things that kind of thing so so i think it's really basically it's 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 your experience and you kind of you know leverage that to sort of make decisions yeah that's phenomenal to hear but uh, you know interestingly if there is one downside of experience it's about you know whether or not you challenge your own assumptions and you know adam grant said in this book called think again so if you have any views on how do you perhaps rethink your own thoughts and if there's anything at all that you systematically do to perhaps uh, rethink the assumptions that you might have rethink the longer term horizon or the plans that are happening in shape because as you rightly mentioned so much of the founder job is looking at the macro vision looking at the longer term horizon and looking at the years, decades, if not the next quarter, right? So it'll be very interesting to hear what you think of this. Well, I think, you know, if a person says, I'm very experienced and therefore I know everything, I think that leads to, you know, sort of arrogance and loss of intellectual humility and can lead to a lot of problems. And that's exactly what that book is sort of saying. On the other hand, if you say, you know, like the saying goes, right? That the more I learn, the more I realize that the less I know. And and that sort of forces you to stay, uh, maintain intellectual humility. Then actually that experience is very valuable because he's saying there's no guarantee, there's no certainty, but you know, here are things or principles that have worked. And they're just that, right? They're not, you know, they're not an assertion. You're not, don't mistake yourself to be an expert. You just have you know, just a better set of experiences or, or you're leveraging your experience where relevant without over-relying on them and saying, you know, arrogantly claiming you know it. So I think if that happens, then it can be a great sort of leveler, right? So you kind of have to be, it gets back to that founder psychology. You can't take yourself too seriously. You can't think of yourself, you know, sort of suffer from God complex or anything like that. You can't, uh, yeah, you know, you, you don't want everybody around you saying, yes, sir, yes, sir, because that's a recipe for disaster. You, you want everybody around you challenging you. And that's hard to do, by the way, because people, you know, they may say it, but, they, it's, they, but it's not a fun experience, I can tell you. 
there's oftentimes people engage you in debates or say, oh, no, I don't agree with it. And that just means you have to work harder to convince them and so on. But I think that's, you know, that's how good ideas come about. So I think, uh, yeah, it's, it's sort of uh, you have to, the experienced person has to consciously say that uh, I, I just have a bigger toolkit, but, there's, but that's not an, a guaranteed path to success, uh, you know, and, and otherwise you won't be having so many 20 and 30 year old successful founders, right? I mean, you, uh, you, if, if experience is everything, because sometimes, by the way, all that baggage you've accumulated is what holds you back, right? You're saying, no, this is how it's always been, so I can't change it. And while, while you know, somebody who has no experience also has no baggage and can sort of say, okay, I'm going to just disrupt the whole thing. Why can't we do it this way? And they actually discovered that, oh, you can. Right. So, so absolutely. I, I agree with you. I think experience in a way can be a disservice unless you sort of, you know, just think of it as a useful tool, uh, but, but not much more than that. Yeah, no, fair enough. It is a double-edged sword, but as you mentioned, intellectual honesty is so relevant there and you just have to maintain that balance, which is something evidently visible by your words. I think for the second last question, Beirut, and this is a fascinating one, personally something that I'm really curious about, but given your entrepreneurial pathway or your career pathway, right? You started as a complete person in academics who was doing uh, something in computers to Wall Street to then starting a company, which has now gone on to become a public one and then starting the second one, which is now also disrupting a completely a different type of technology, right? What I'm trying to understand here is what keeps you still going, right? I'm sure that there's so much to still do with Gupshop and the vision is really large and you're still scratching the surface and we're going to see a lot of accolades come there. But what is it on a day-to-day that keeps you uh, still at it? What, what does the entrepreneurial love look like for you? If you can just put it out in words for us, I think there'll be so much to learn from especially the all the youngsters listening in you know i um, i mean i love what i do because you know where else can you get an opportunity to to do something or build something that can impact millions of lives right that can really touch uh, lots of users and make their lives better so it's sort of massive and disproportionate impact it is also, you know, entrepreneurship is also sort of one of the best sort of prosperity generating machines in society, whether it's, uh, it's value for customers, whether it's wealth for employees and investors, or whether it's sort of creating this cycle of the next generation of entrepreneurs, right? Because by the way, a lot of people who've left Gupshop have gone on to start companies and I expect even many more so. Why? Because they built that experience and that confidence at Gapsha, which sort of helps them. And frankly, in democratic societies, right, uh, sort of innovation, creation, wealth generation is not done by governments. It's done by sort of private individuals, essentially entrepreneurs. And, uh, you know, if you can, if you can do that, um, I mean, there's not, nothing like it. I think it's easily the most impactful you know, perhaps the, the most uh, noble in that sense, profession. Uh, I mean, and it's so much fun. I mean, it's sort of intellectually stimulating. It's among the hardest thing to do. It's really complex to figure out and make it all work. Um, so what else is there to do? I mean, I, you know, at least for me, from my point of view, it's, it's a lot of fun. It's stimulating. It's very gratifying. And uh, yeah, it's, um, you know, also, also lucrative as well. So no matter which of these motivations drives people, I think there's 
you know, and in some sense, it's a combination of all of that you know, together. So you, you love it. Now, to be fair, it's also excruciatingly painful, extremely challenging, the roller coaster ride and the, the paranoia and the stress levels, you know, can also be very high. So you kind of have to take the good with the bad. And you kind of have to say, yes, I, so when I say this, that I love this journey, I love the good and the bad, right? Because even at Gupsha, we had a 10-year journey with no investors and no funding. And, you know, a lot of people would have said, oh, wait a minute, that's not the part of the, of the journey that I like, right? I just, it's just like the good part when there's a lot of funding and a lot of success. And it's like, no, you can't, you can't just have the good parts. You sort of have to, you know, you have to love it enough to say, okay, even the bad parts, you, you have to be in that sense, optimistic. You have to be you know, willing to keep tinkering and pivoting and, you know, until sort of the, the next thing comes through and that works and, and so on, right? So, uh, you know, success is a lot of preparation where preparation meets opportunity, right? I mean, a little bit of luck is also required for things to happen. Yeah, but, but for me, I mean, I just love every aspect of it. It's just so creative. I mean, you're always, you know, building, creating, tinkering. And I think it really is, very transformative force uh, in society. Absolutely. No, I mean, your words are a testament to the passion with which you are building. And as you mentioned, I think you have to accept the good and the bad and you have to really love it to be able to embrace the journey such that the journey matters more than the end pathway, which can be different for multiple entrepreneurs. Uh, that's subjective. I'm guessing success is only as how you define it to be. But uh, great to see that you have to accept it. And therein lies my last question. And on a very abstract note, and picking up from what you mentioned, one common theme I've also observed across whenever you've spoken is a steady state, right? A steady state across the good and the bad, across the highs and the lows, even at the funding announcements, it's not been that, you know, a, a unicorn status or a profitable unicorn and other things like that are milestones that matter. It's about embracing that journey, especially given that you've been through so many cycles. So what do you have to say about that steady state? And how do you think a lot of us who may not realize this and are chasing, let's say, final outcomes or milestones, which may not essentially make sense in the journey perspective? How can we take use from it? I think that would be a long-winded abstract into a wonderful conversation. <laughs> well, uh, I, I don't know if there is a steady state. It's all unsteady. It's all uncertain. It's all, you know, a, a roller coaster. There's never a dull moment. And, you know, the moment you reach some equilibrium point or some steadiness of some kind, uh, something else changes, maybe the technology changes, maybe some competitor changes, the regulations change or something or the other, you know, happens and, and, and such. So I think uh, maybe, you know, so, so the, the steadiness is not in the day-to-day. -day. I think the steadiness probably is in your own mind, which is to say, okay, I love this process of, you know, creation. I'm, I love this journey and th there will be inevitable challenges and we'll overcome them, we'll figure a way out through all of them. And that, you know, maybe maybe what the steady thing here is that can-do attitude saying, okay, it's hard, but we'll figure it out. We can, we'll try, uh, we'll keep doing it. And, you know, and sort of enjoy, enjoy the process, uh, whichever way it goes uh, in terms of, uh, even if the, the outcome is bad today, it might improve tomorrow, I think, or, or rather figure out how it will, right? Not just by sitting passively, but think about what you can do differently, what you can do better, and that that optimism, even in the you know when when you're suffering from the depths of despair, uh, you just have to have that inherent 
positive uh, attitude. I don't mean irrational optimism, right? You have to be somewhat realistic, but but you're still positive, saying, "Yeah, okay, you know, we lost today, but we can come back and win tomorrow, and figure out a way. We'll do something different, and so on." So, so really, that's the that's the steady state, and you know, and, and that's very infectious because you you know, in general, you you talk to entrepreneurs. There's a you know, there's there's a there's a willingness to like. There's no problem. That you can't find a solution for. Okay, let's think about it. Let's sort it through. What if we tried this? What if we tried that? And so on. And maybe you know, that's that's the steady state, and that's the, that's a point at which you get peace, where you don't tie your ego into okay your valuation necessarily. I mean, of course, it's a way to keep score, and it's important. But there's something bigger going on. How do you you know? I, I would say focus on the value, not on the valuation. Right? What value are you building in the business? Are you building a better product? Are you getting customers? Do they love you? Do you have a good team? Is that growing and so on? And if that happens, you know, valuation will take care of itself. The ups and downs will sort of sort themselves out. But, you know, you, you continue to sort of just constantly think about how to build value while minimizing risk and so on. I guess that's the, the closest to some kind of steady state I can think of, yeah. Wow, no, that's that's wonderful to hear. I could not have thought of a more brilliant end to what has been a great conversation. Thank you so much, Beirut, for your time. I certainly love the conversation and I hope you enjoyed it as well. These are going to be amazingly useful for everyone listening in. And thanks again for being on the show. Sure. Thanks for having me. I hope uh, it was useful to all the budding entrepreneurs out there. Awesome. The sheer aura and wisdom from 20 plus years of being an incredible founder and building great companies has been very evident, helpful, and hopefully actionably useful for everyone tuning in. That was it from the 63rd episode of the Indian Silicon Valley podcast with Beirut Sheikh of Gupshap. Thank you so much for tuning in. I really hope you enjoyed the episode as much as I did. If you're finding value with the podcast, do follow it on the audio streaming platform of your choice, drop in a review, or subscribe to our WhatsApp newsletter to get all the updates directly on your inbox. Thanks again. I will see you next week for another episode. Till then, I hope you recon. If you never try, you'll never know. Stay tuned and keep building.